Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Our final episode from the 5775 High Holidays concludes with Rabbi Shalom addressing the question, Why be good? On behalf of Kol Hadash, we wish you a happy and healthy new year. I once went to visit a family to prepare for a funeral. The patriarch of the family had died. And so I sat down with my pen and paper with the family and I asked them, tell me some things about your father, about your husband. And they said, he worked hard and he loved his family and nothing else. So I said, well, did he have any extracurricular activities, things he liked to do, passions in life? He worked hard and he loved his family. How was he as a father? He worked hard and he loved his family. I realized he was probably a jerk. (laughs) Now, if you did a personality survey based on how the deceased are portrayed in eulogies, you'd wonder what happened to all the mean people that we meet. (laughs) This is the wisdom behind the Yiddish expression, all brides are beautiful, all the dead are pious. With this family, once I understood what was going on, I put down my pen and I asked him to talk freely off the record. In the end, we did find ways to present him well. He was loved by his family. If not, they simply would have trashed him to me and I would have given that. And if he were hypercritical, I could say, he had high standards. (laughs) He pushed us to succeed. I have an obligation through that process to meet the needs of the family, but I also have an obligation to the truth. I will not lie and say he was beloved by all, or that he made friends easily, or that he was very generous if he was none of these. It would not ring true to the family, and I would know it was a lie. One of the first bar mitzvahs I led at Kol Hadash from this very rock, we were rehearsing the last rehearsal before the event, and the parent of the bar mitzvah boy said to him, now when you read the Hebrew, if you make a mistake, keep going because nobody will know the difference. And the bar mitzvah boy said, sort of under his breath, but I heard him, he said, but I'll know. And I said, exactly right. There's something in us, call it conscience or a sense of self, that maintains our own standards. When I'm hired for a life cycle event like a funeral, they get my whole person, my mouth, to be sure, but also my brain. And along with my brain goes my sense of self, my ethical being. Why be a good person? It's not a question you hear very often. There are many routes to how to be a good person. Secular ethical philosophies, political parties who are happy to tell you how to behave, innumerable religions who are convinced that they have the true right path. A story is told about a man who goes to heaven. He tours around and sees all peoples living together in harmony until he finds one corner that is walled off with no windows. And so he says, what's the deal with that corner? And his tour guide says, oh, that's the Orthodox Jews. They think they're the only ones here. (laughs) Now you could also fill that joke with Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox or Sunni Muslims or Shiite Muslims. They all believe they're the only one there. In past years, we have spent high holiday time together exploring how to be a good person, what lessons to draw from the human experience across religious and cultural lines on what the good life should be. Out there, in the broader Jewish world, there are plenty of Yom Kippur sermons 
on how often people fail to be good. I guess some people go to synagogue to be made to feel bad. Perhaps it's a kind of emotional atonement. If I confess my sins and I listen to someone harangue me for a few hours, I'll burn off some failure and I'll feel better. Well, I don't harangue people for their moral failings, even those seven of you who really deserve it. <laughs> Which seven? Well, I won't tell you, but I will tell you why I won't tell you. Jewish folklore describes the Lamed Vovniks, 36 hidden righteous, traditionally men, we can say people, upon whom the world depends. Lamed Vov is how you write the number 36 in two Hebrew letters. Those who know their Hebrew numerology will also remember that 36 is double chai, 18, or life. One of the virtues of the Lamed Vovniks in their great righteousness is great humility. Often they themselves do not know that the world depends on them. If no one knows who are the Lamed Vovniks, the 36 righteous people on whom the world depends, then you had better treat everyone as if they might be one and act yourself as if you might be too. This is one answer to why be good. The world depends on it, but it won't work for us. It presupposes a cosmic judgment for the collective sins of humanity as well as a kind of vicarious atonement, someone else's good deeds and righteousness averting disaster for all. You can hear echoes of the traditional Yom Kippur scapegoat or another legend of a righteous individual suffering for the sins of humanity that you may have heard elsewhere. Most important, the Lamed Vovnik story shows that the question of why be good and how be good are intertwined. Until you've defined what it means to be good, you don't know the answer to why be good or how be good. For the Lamed Vovnik, piety is a cardinal virtue. Whereas we might prioritize other qualities like courage for a righteous cause, kindness to those in need, the willingness to challenge authority and to think independently. Sometimes traditional Jewish ethics agree with us, sometimes they do not. Still, consider what our interactions would be like if we lived the legend of the Lamed Vovniks, if we truly believed that anyone we met could be someone on whom the world depends, or that we ourselves could have such cosmic importance. We would talk kindly to each other. We would treat each other with respect and dignity. We would take each other's failings in the best possible light. Hypercritical becomes high standards. We would examine our own actions to do our very best. The reason the Lamed Vovnik story won't work is that we know it's a myth. But sometimes myth, even after its mythness is exposed, can still have positive influence, if no longer absolute control. Another example from Jewish literature, one of my favorite passages in the Exodus narrative, so you may have heard me talk about it before. After the golden calf, God is fed up. He says, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. Your people have done it for the last time. It's a little bit like parents, you know. Your son, do you know what your son has done? So Moses says, uh, God says to Moses, your people have done it, I'm going to wipe them out. Now, at times in the Torah narrative, Moses functions as God's therapist because God has a bit of an anger management issue. <laughs> so he's ready to wipe them out, and Moses says, hold on. God, your people are the people to whom you've promised all these wonderful things. So again, he reinforces the your and your. 
After all, you promised their ancestors that you would do this wonderful thing for them, bring them to a promised land. And after all, what would the other peoples around say if they see what you do to them out here in the wilderness? And so between the internal sense of promise and the external threat of disapproval, God relents. Now, later rabbis reading this story imagine what chutzpah it takes for Moses to challenge God. They imagine a scenario where a king brings someone to see him, and then the king's son comes in, and the king begins to beat his son, almost to kill him. And the man visiting the king says, who am I to speak to the king? And yet, zitalui bi, it hangs on me. If I don't do it, something terrible will happen. And so they imagine Moses doing the same thing. Now, we don't have to be talking to a god to take the responsibility of acting when action is needed. It does not need to be the entire universe that hangs on our deeds. Jewish tradition claims that if you save one life, it is as if you save the entire world. Or to quote contemporary bumper sticker wisdom, think globally, act locally. Deep in our psyches, we want what we do to count. We want someone to be keeping score. We want a system that rewards the good and punishes the bad. We want the answer to why be good to be because it's worth it. You will get what you deserve. If human experience in this life seems to contradict that desire, we invent all kinds of systems to make it true. Heaven and hell, cosmic judgment at the end of days, karma that comes back to you, reincarnation up or down based on your deeds in a previous life. These religious beliefs all try to bring justice to the universe. They answer, why be good? Because someone is watching, and he knows if you are sleeping, he knows if you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good. Now, we might ask, if you're only being good because someone is watching you, does that really count as being good? Or are you just minimally wise to avoid certain punishment? We understand our psychological needs. We understand how we project them onto the universe. So these answers won't work for us either. We know too many good people who died too soon to believe that the system is designed according to our moral agenda. I have done funerals for suicides, for drug overdoses, for young people with cancer, even a crib death. And seeing the pain the deaths cause their families is all the evidence I need. Are there exactly seven people in this congregation with moral failings? There are seven, and seven times seven, and even seven times seven times seven with good turnout. <laughs> I do not believe in original sin, or in any kind of supernatural sin for that matter. I do not believe that Jews are obligated to follow 613 commandments, so many commandments and so restrictive that failure is inevitable and guilt is guaranteed. I do believe that morality, virtue, being good is an ideal. And human ideals are imposed on a material world that does not conform to our desires. Just as it may help to imagine ourselves to be one of the secret righteous, we must also accept that all of us have our failings. There are no saints, no matter what data funeral eulogies would provide. Gandhi was not a good parent. Martin Luther King Jr. had extramarital affairs. Mother Teresa refused to allow birth control in her missions, no matter how it would have improved 
her, lives, her, her charges' lives. Sometimes we just have to make the best of who we are. In the Babylonian Talmud, we read this story. For two and a half years, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel debated. One group said, it is better for humanity not to have been created than to have been created. And the other said, it is better for humanity to have been created than to not have been created. They finally took a vote and decided it were better for humanity not to have been created than to have been created. But now that they have been created, let them investigate their past deeds or others say, let them examine their future actions. As it turns out, the winners were right. Humanity was not created, we evolved. But consider how this Talmudic argument is both useless and useful. Two and a half years debating something you have no power to affect. What are you going to do? Turn back the clock? Wipe us out? Based on their ideals of a perfect universe, the schools agreed the cosmos would have been better off without humanity. So what? Here's how the argument becomes useful. We have to deal with this reality. Hillel and Shammai might say, what if our God overheard the discussion, decided they were right, and sent another flood without a Noah? Since we're on thin cosmic ice anyways, they would say, we had better be good by looking back at what we've done or looking forward to what we will do. Perfect for Yom Kippur. In our secular vocabulary, we might say the earth doesn't need us to keep spinning, but we need the earth and each other. This is also why we need a Yom Kippur process of making things right, since all things human are not ideal. Imagining that we are a cosmic mistake is still mostly useless because we were not created and we will not be uncreated, at least until the sun explodes. And who's motivated to be good by considering life a mistake? We need our answer to why be good. That does not imagine we are cosmically important or that every deed is being scored in a book of life or that we are a great mistake. The theme of our high holiday explorations has been why rather than how. Why be anything? Why be Jewish? Why be Jewish and a humanist? Because if you can't answer why, who cares about the how? If someone asks you, how can I break into my neighbor's house? Don't answer with a crowbar. <laughs> Say, why would you want to do that? The funerals I perform are mostly for genuinely good people. Changing hypercritical to high standards happens a lot less than you might imagine. Let us first ask what it means to be good, and maybe that will address the why for us. If Yom Kippur is about doing better, a roadmap to the good would be helpful. What is virtue? A perennial question for philosophy and religion. In Pirkei Avot, rabbinic sayings compiled around the year 200 of the Common Era, we read about four human types, the fool, the average, the wicked, and the saint. Virtue is not the same as simply being obedient. Following the rules makes you average, the lowest common denominator, but to merit the title good requires more. For some, self-sacrifice is a virtue. The rabbinic saint is the one who says, what's yours is yours and what's mine is yours. While the average says, what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine. The wicked says, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. And the fool says, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. 
Virtue there is extreme generosity. But for others, self-actualization is a higher value than self-sacrifice. In Maimonides' famous ladder of charitable giving, the highest level is teaching the needy a profession, so they no longer need charity. In science, theories can be proven true or false. My experience with philosophy has been that there is often an element of truth in both sides, which is why smart people disagree. Being autonomous and in charge of our own lives rings the good bell. And so too does caring for others. Just as there is no one how to be good, there is no one sense of what virtue is. When we study ethical choices across cultures, looking for common human ethical principles, we find a few that appear everywhere. Treating others fairly, honoring your family, limiting violence, etc. The trick is the balance among those values. Is treating others fairly more important than honoring your family? Or when you have a government job to fill, should you automatically hire your cousin? In some cultures, nepotism would be bad. While in other cultures, it's unthinkable to help a stranger instead of your family. Defining what virtue could mean does not provide a clear reason to us of why be good, since there are so many versions of virtue beyond even religious piety. I once did a funeral for the mother of a member of the congregation. I met with her children first and talked about their experience with her as a mother. And then I had the chance before the funeral a couple days later to talk to her grandchildren. And it was like two different people because they had experienced her so differently as a parent in her 30s and 40s and as a grandparent in her 60s and 70s because in fact she was a different person. She had experienced so much more. She had grown in her own way. She had changed over time. We learn over time. What we believed was good may change as we understand life differently and as we ourselves change. Why be good? We can always turn to evolution. If we understand who we are and how we came to be, perhaps that will shed light on how best to get along. Why was being good an evolutionary advantage? Humanity, certainly before modern times, always functioned in social groups. Society did not begin with the political philosopher's idealized state of nature where autonomous individuals made social contracts. I saw an article last year in Smithsonian Magazine Online about a family living in Siberia who fled Soviet control in the 1930s and were not discovered until the 1970s. They melted into the woods and it was just a mother and a father and their children, and that was their society. Two of the children were born there and had never experienced anything other than this society. No contact with civilization, no metal because after a decade it rusted out, no medicine, no culture beyond their own discussions with each other, just talking about their dreams and reading their old tattered Bible. Now what made this story so striking was how unusual it is to be so isolated. Whether it's Aristotle's claim that humanity is a social animal, or the Genesis statement, it is not good for humanity to be alone, we know deeply, as I've cited before, that people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. <laughs> groups with pro-social genes likely did better than groups with anti-social genes at caring for the sick and the young, collaborating for food and security, passing on accumulated knowledge and culture. 
We are more likely to trust others and work together if they have proven themselves to be trustworthy, what the group might define as good, honest, responsible, capable. If someone has a track record of good, that is pro-social behavior, we are even more likely to forgive them for wronging us or to accept their apology and move forward. Again, Yom Kippur. So an evolutionary reason for why be good could be it's good for the group and therefore good for you if you're in the group. Of course, even if this evolutionary reconstruction is accurate, that's not enough of a reason today. We evolved to eat meat, but plenty of us are healthy on vegetarian diets. We evolved with violent conflict between groups, but today we often channel that into sports or exercise or workplace competition. Evolution weeds out the weak traits, like my nearsightedness, but between eyeglasses and LASIK surgery, it meant I was not selected against by a runaway bison. And my children get to have just as many challenges with glasses and braces as I did. <laughs> Using evolution to evaluate social behavior is tricky. There's plenty of theory but limited experimental evidence. And the more we understand about human psychology and the impact of human culture, the harder it is to tease out what is biological and what is cultural. I saw a, a uh, speech given by Neil deGrasse Tyson, the physicist and popularizer of science. And someone asked him at the end of a presentation about the perennial question of women in science. Why are there not more women involved in science? Now, Neil's experience is illustrative. He himself is African-American, and he tells many stories about how when he said he wanted to be a physicist, they asked him about sports. And so he said, I always think of this case of women in science like this. If you see someone lying on the ground with an elephant sitting on his chest, and he complains of chest pain, he could be having a heart attack. But until you remove the elephant, there's no way to know. Until we manage the elephant of culture, of presuppositions, there's no way to know. There's also a serious problem with the answer, ask not what your evolutionary subgroup can do for you, ask what you can do for your evolutionary subgroup. Do I ever get to ask what the group does for me? Or what I get to do for myself? Only focusing on a group tramples the individual. Though we also understand that only listening to the individual means a community of one. We do not run our personal lives or our Jewish lives purely on what the group thinks is good. Some of us fast on Yom Kippur, some do not, and we celebrate the freedom to make our own choices. Someone who cares absolutely nothing about what any other person or society thinks is technically called a sociopath. But only caring about what everyone else thinks is also a problem. Let's change the scope then. Not why is it good for the group if individuals are good, but why might it be good for the individual to be good? Why be good for ourselves if not for others? Part of our sense of self comes from the kind of person we think we are, and so too does our ability to be good. Those who feel limited find it hard to be generous. Those who have been cheated may be less likely to trust and more likely themselves to cheat. We love to think that we could suffer and do better in the language of Jewish ethics. Do not oppress the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Or even just the golden rule, however you formulate it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or Hillel's negative version, do not do to others what is hateful to you. It's very tempting instead to go for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
If everyone else is cheating, why shouldn't I? If someone screwed me over, then it's a screw or be screwed world and I won't get fooled again. In Israel, no one wants to be a fire, a sucker, the person taken advantage of. On the other hand, if we have a strong sense of self-worth, a deep-seated dignity, a confidence that we can do the right thing and still turn out all right, then we can give people second chances. We can blame those who deserve blame and not take out our injury on the next person. How do we acquire these characteristics? Practice, practice, practice. An economist did a fascinating study trying to connect the United Nations Corruption Index with how many unpaid parking tickets the UN delegation for that country had. <laughs> because the parking tickets can't be enforced because of diplomatic immunity. And so, as you might have guessed, the countries with the lowest score on the corruption index, the least corrupt countries, have almost no tickets, and if they get one, they pay it right away. And the countries that are very high on the corruption index, Nigeria, you can imagine some others, they unfortunately get lots of tickets and never pay them at all. Sometimes the small issues help with the big ones. If your habit is to tell the truth, to live your beliefs, the more you do it, the more natural it becomes. Why do people get to funerals on time? You've heard the excuse of Jewish time. I've also heard Irish time, Italian time, Russian time. Even the African-American community themselves use what they call CPT, colored person time. In fact, the only group that's on time are the wasps. So there really should be wasp time and ethnic time. Now, it's not true that Jews are unable to get places on time. Almost everyone got here by 10 o'clock this morning. And what I found is that, for example, the Israeli army tends to get places on time. They don't say, my grandmother called, and I got delayed, and they show up. Even Jews get to funerals on time. Why? Well, it's important enough. There's the fear of social disapproval walking in late. It's a serious event. And it's a sign of respect, both for the dead and for the living. Why be good? We are good for ourselves and good for each other. We are good because we think it is important, and we are good because life is imperfect and we have to do as well as possible. We are good because we want to make a good impression, and we are good because it makes us feel better about ourselves. The world may not depend on our behavior, but our ability to forgive others begins with our acceptance of our own flaws, and we are all flawed. In the end, however, one more reason why we are good may be the most effective, our impact on the future. Immortality is another religious reason to be good. Deny yourself in this life to earn life eternal. Even in a secular sense, our good deeds can buy us our own brand of immortality. When I meet with families to talk about funerals for someone who has died, I can't tell you how many children will talk about their parents or their grandparents, whether to me, or in public at a service, or in a shiva, or for the rest of their lives, they'll describe these people as role models, as heroes. Hard work, honesty, generosity, integrity, these are the life lessons offered by the people we love. And as I stand up and give these eulogies, I sometimes think to myself, what will my family and my friends say about me? And so I strive to be loving, to be good, and honest, and patient, and generous, because that's how I can impact the future. 
That's what entirely depends on me. If people who loved me remember me for that, emulate me in that, then the world is sustained not just by the living righteous, but also by the legacy of truly good men and women. We always end our congregational memorials with a line from the biblical book of Proverbs because it's always true. Zecher tzadik livracha, the memory of a righteous person, is a blessing. Shana tova, a happy and healthy new year to you all. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Kol Hadash podcast. For more information about humanistic Judaism, Kol Hadash congregation, and Rabbi Shalom, visit our website, kolhadash.com. I'm Ken Burke, and thanks for listening.